At the beginning of the job interview process, you're just a piece of paper. Another resume submitted for the gig. You get piled up with the other papers and before you even know it, you've been placed into one of two piles, the no's or the yeses. This is the show all about getting you into the yes pile. Welcome to season two of the Yes Pile podcast. This is the show dedicated to helping you grow, stretch, and prepare to land where else in the Yes Pile of candidates for your dream job. I'm your host, Tessa Wolf. I'm an expert in career growth and goal setting, having coached hundreds of people across my career in corporate America, and now as a professional career coach. My goal for the show in season two is to share stories of amazing people in inspiring professions, to learn all about how they got to where they are today and the things they learned along the way, and to teach you that the path to what you think success looks like isn't always a straight line, and that's more than okay. Hello, hello. I am pretty excited to share today's interview with you. Today, I get to share my talk with Jim Wolfe, professional musician, singer, songwriter, producer. He's also my husband. You know, Jim's story is a lot like other artist stories. He found inspiration. He picked up a guitar and he started playing. He got to step onto a stage, small at first, then later, bigger, and he got to share his music with the world. Now, we all know how this story goes, right? Becoming a professional musician can seem like a pipe dream, an impossible task, but that's where Jim's story is different than most. While trying to find success in the US, and even define what that meant for himself, Jim found success in the most unlikely of places, South Korea. While bartending and playing club shows across the U.S., Jim's songs were topping the charts in a country he had never even been to. Today, Jim shares with us his very unique story, a journey of a kid getting his first guitar, the pursuit of a passion, finding his audience, and letting go of the idea that all success looks the same. Here's Jim Wolfe. All right, this is a pretty special interview today for a few reasons. First, this is actually the first in-person interview of the season. We're actually sitting in the same room, which is pretty cool, a little different. But second, I am sitting here today with my husband, which makes this a little different, uh, but also pretty special. So I'm sitting here with the one and only... Jim Wolfe, singer, songwriter, composer, producer, dad joke maker. Not really. (laughs) Jim, it's super easy for me to introduce you to people. Well, why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners of the podcast? Hi, everybody. I'm Jim Wolfe. No Eon Wolfe, as I always say. Um, singer songwriter later in life I became a producer because I've realized it's much cheaper to produce my own stuff um, rather than pay big studios so um, 
I find that actually most of the songwriting process actually takes place while producing. It's kind of very helpful hmm. in the end. That's interesting. Okay, so you are a multi-hyphenate. You kind of do everything from start to finish in the world of music, but has it always been that way? Take us back. Did you always have a musician inside you even before you knew what your instrument was or you knew where your talent was? Yeah, so when I was in high school, I used to I used to watch my brother's band play, and I was really influenced by them a lot. And um, I always sat in on practices and I couldn't play an instrument. So I, st I started first day like bongos and I just want to play in the background, but I didn't actually <laughs> know what I was doing. I, I didn't, I couldn't keep rhythm or anything. And then eventually I kind of, I think it was my turning my 16th birthday. It was my 15th. I was, I was, it was like 15 and you know, 11 months or something. And we went to get a guitar at Sam Ash music store in uh, New Haven. No, wait, were you buying your guitar yourself or was this a birthday gift from somebody it, else? It was a birthday gift from my parents. Very nice. Yeah. To me. And I, I really wanted a guitar. So uh, my brother, Rich and his band went and they helped me pick out a guitar and they picked out a, a Fender Stratocaster Tex-Mex um, Sunburst, which was really <laughs> Great guitar. I really loved it. I couldn't really play at the time at all going into it. Yeah, it's a bit of a difficult first instrument. Well, be, well <laughs> they also were like, here, you, you get the electric guitar and you get the amp. And I was like trying to do the learning curve for both at the same time. When in really, reality, I probably would have given myself an acoustic guitar and been like, here's, so, uh, here's a chord back. book. Just, you know, focus on that rather than like trying to figure out tones and stuff all mm. at the same time. It's very complicated. Really could have been simplified. But they were kind of going the cool route. This is what you want. You want this and you want that. And uh, my brother's band uh, first tried to show me chords to like a song and they played it. I think that one of the first things I was ever shown was actually from Joe Belesne. And it was Saturday Morning Feel. Now, uh, for people who might not know the impact of that song... There is a key element to this story that Jim doesn't talk about much here, but he was really influenced by that band because they were all incredible musicians in their own right. Incredible. But, incredible for high schoolers. But there was a pretty special musician in that band that influenced you wanting to play guitar. So one was Joe Blesne, who you just mentioned. That's right, Joe. And the other one is somebody that I think probably everybody knows household name. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. So yeah. the other one, and Jim does not talk about this often. So we're lucky that, um, he's letting me pick on him a little bit right now, but the other one was John Mayer, a young John Mayer was in your brother's band That's in true. high school. And so these guys, your brother, John, Joe, Tim Procaccini. Okay, they all take you to get your first guitar. This That's is a right. big deal. This is a milestone. Yeah. Sam Ash Music Store. Um, early 90s. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was, I think, 15. Yeah, that's right. 15 turning 16. So you get the guitar, you get the amp, and then you're like, wow, this is not as easy as I no. thought it was going to be. I remember just sitting in the basement with an unplugged as, you know, they were just doing a quick rap on practice. They're just playing through another song or two. And then after Joe spent time with me and he was showing me chords to Saturday morning feel. And I was like, well, I, 
I don't know how you move your hands so fast. He's like, ah, just muscle memory. You'll get it. You know, like that kind of thing. And then I remember that ended. And I remember I also at, at the music store that day got a VCR tape that had uh, this real 80s guy and like came with a chord book. It was like a how to so play So I guitar. learned basic chords like A, E, and D from a VCR tape. It was, I, it was like the original YouTube kind of. It definitely was the original YouTube. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. So you're learning to play guitar. You're inspired. Did you grow up in a musical house like outside of your brother Rich? Did the family listen to a lot of music? Not, I mean, not really. As a, as a kid, my brothers and I, we'd listen to a lot of eight tracks and records, like lots of vinyl. But that's really the extent of it. It was like Jackson 5. Love it. Kind of, you know, all this retro stuff that's my parents. But that's as musical as our household got. Right. My family didn't really, I think, understand wanting to pursue music as a, as a passion. And that's okay. Some people just aren't programmed to understand that. So I have a, I have a cousin, though, who is very musical. So at first, I, you know, I think my brother and I both found bonding with him because he was like, like 80s guitar guy. <laughs> so like shredder. There was some there was some musical inclination in the family. Is like yeah. Everybody appreciated music. Was there a moment for you or I guess what was the moment for you where it went from this is a really cool passion, something I really want to learn and master to this could be a career. Like did you go to school thinking and when I mean school, did you go to college thinking I'm going to study music? I'm going to pursue this, and this is going to be my career. No, so it wasn't until I was already in college my first year, fall semester. I was actually at school for business, and I can't remember what my minor was. At the time. I don't know if I had one. <laughs> Something very impactful. But I went, I went for business, and it was actually like that first uh, New Year's going into the next year. Yeah. I was actually at a New York City fish show. And I saw the band playing. Uh, well, actually, I didn't get in because my ticket was counterfeit. It's a long story. But seeing the fans, I was like, these are just people. And these people are worshiping them. Yeah. Because they're artists. Was that the biggest concert that was, you had been to at that time? No. No? Okay. I went I went to But like, it's bigger, such, their fans are so crazy about so them. So crazy yeah, about yeah, them, yeah. yeah. And I was like, sense. wow, they're, they're just people. But these people put them on such a pedestal. And I yeah. get it. They're like some of yeah. the most incredible musicians in the world. Yeah. But they're So that was a moment for you. That was like yeah. an unlock yeah. where you were like, wait a minute. Yeah. I want that. Well, to to some degree. Sure. You know. Yeah. To some degree, it's, it's like way too weird. Like I wouldn't want it that weird. Saying you want to be in fish, I'm saying you oh, saw right, right, the right, right. connection <laughs> between the fans and the band, and that was appealing to you. You're saying that was a moment that kind of changed how you thought about music as a career. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. So it, then, but it was always it was. Let me just say, sorry. It was always kind of underlying from seeing like you know going to like a Dave Matthews show and like just being really influenced from just seeing the crowd. Yeah. And seeing him, actually Dave was a very big influence, seeing him on stage and be like, I want this. Yeah. Because that, that was much more like the singer-songwriter route was kind of, seeing him was, it was probably my first, like, 
concert that made me say, oh, I get writing your own songs and this makes sense. And then seeing my brother's band and doing that kind of stuff at the same time, I'm like, I get what they're trying to do. And it's kind of addicting, right? It's very. Yeah. You see it and you feel the energy from mm-hmm. people and you feel the adoration from yeah. people. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, earlier, the first interview we did this season was with Jeff Tice, who's a comedian, you know. And one of the things he jokingly said, but he told me he really meant it, was a lot of professional comics that he's had the opportunity to talk to told him, oh, man, are you sure you want to do this? Because when you get on stage and you get that big laugh, it's like doing heroin. You're hooked from that <laughs> moment forward and you can't shake it. And I always think that that applies to actors, musicians, anybody that's in the space of getting on stage and giving a part of themselves. Like it's addicting that it, rush you get. It absolutely is. So tell me then. So we get our guitar at 16. We go to college to study business, but we're starting to recognize people are doing this for a living and why not me? Right. So when did you go from basement strummer to performing on a stage of any kind for people? When did that happen? So, you know, like basement strummer was more after I got that first guitar when I was like yeah. 17 and I was like trying to learn Marley tunes and stuff like that, <laughs> you know, like no mo- woman, no cry and stuff like that. And I wasn't very good to play out, but I always wanted to learn. And it wasn't until that uh, college concert experience that I was like, um, I, I want to be in a band like immediately. And one of the first things I did was I just stayed home and wrote songs for a couple months, almost for the entire spring semester. And I ended up that uh, semester meeting uh, my first bandmate ever, Josh Perry great guy and uh i was like you play music i play music i was like you want to come over and jam (laughs) um yeah so you you met josh you're like hey i don't know you we both are self-proclaimed musicians we should get together and jam and then what a band was born well he goes i play bass and i was like no way i play guitar and he and i said i have my own songs like i wrote a bunch of songs and he I said, you want to come over and hear them? Because it's in college. It wasn't a big deal. Like people's apartment was like right totally. there. It's not like you're like driving yeah, totally. a half hour to go over to someone you never met's place. So, um, you know, we basically went across campus and I just lived right, just right outside. And uh, he came over and we jammed and I we, we played these first three songs. I was just basically like, these are simple. The chords are like this. And um, he liked them and he was like, I got a guy that plays the drums, an old friend from like, you know, high school or whatever. I got a guy. I got, I got this guy. He's the best. <laughs> and we, we met him. He called him up. He said, let's, let's meet. So we, we planned it. We got together and we went over his place. And the first thing we played together was a Dave Matthews song. Yeah. <laughs> it was a warehouse. Actually, we this tried. So we tried to play. Appropriate for the, the time. time. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, he was like his drummer, Carter. He could like play everything. Yeah. And it was like so impressive because he studied like to be able to do that stuff. And uh, I mean, we clicked right away, but we, we still felt like we were missing an element. So then we needed a one more guy. And Jeff, the drummer, was like, 
I got this guitar player. So he brought the last <laughs> guy and then we kind of came together. But the, the thing about that band at that time, we didn't, it, it was kind of nice because it was raw, but at the same time, it was unmarketable. Like we didn't really, what are you? Well, we I guess we we're progressive rock, but we we're like, well, it's kind of funk and it's kind of rock. And it's, you you know, were like every other college band. Every other college You band. were a little bit of everything because you were influenced from all the things that happened in the 70s, 80s, and 90s through early 2000s. That's right. Yeah. And so... And, and pop radio didn't really... It wasn't as bad. Like now it was it's, different. Now it's like very yeah. strict. Yeah. To, so tell me, so you guys formed this band and then were you just playing around your college town? Was that how it started? Like, tell me about the first time you got uh, on stage with the band. So the... My God, I'm trying to think about this. Hold on, it's been a while. Yeah. Uh, first show we played, I think. I think one of the first places we ever played was a place called the Equator in Manchester, Connecticut. Manchester, Connecticut. Yeah. I think that was our first show. Uh, we also played at the Webster Theater in Hartford, which was. Great. It was like the cool place to play. Okay. So, so we played there. You were dying to get on stage because that's what being a musician yes. meant to you at the time. So I want you to tell me when that happened. Yeah. How did it feel? Oh, it was incredible. And actually, there's there's one moment that if you'd ask Josh about, it's like his favorite show when we played at UConn Spring Weekend X-Lot for like a thousand, a couple thousand people in this parking lot and um we almost didn't get to play because jeff didn't want to play the other guy's drums and (laughs) (laughs) but the the feeling on stage playing for so many people so early on we were like we could do this this is this is amazing i didn't know we could do this you know so you had a moment where you were like this is what i want to pursue yeah for grown-up real life this is my job now. Yeah. And actually, you're, you're jogging my memory a bit here. I, I, there, was a, there was a guy I used to jam with that was my roommate. And I, I totally forgot. We used to play together at the local bar, just covers. And we did Dave covers. <laughs> <laughs> and like also like Guns N' Roses patients and like, obviously, you know, uh, obviously, but that we did that for a short time and it, I remember we had such a great turnout and then people wanted more covers and I was like, I don't, I don't want to do this. And that's kind of when I had the, uh, you know, like the real epiphany to like write my own songs. Like I don't want to be known for covers. I want to write my own stuff. That was a, and that's when you went away for a semester and just started writing, writing, writing. Yes. Yeah. And then you met Josh and the rest was history. Yeah. Sorry, this is really dialing back. No, it's really been a long time. So that's, that's the cool part about these conversations. So so you, you had the moment, you're on stage, you're seeing thousands of people, you're with a band. Now I'm going to fast forward. I'm going to bring you to around, you know, 10, 12 years ago, we met in New York City. So at some point you moved to New York City and that was for music, right? Yeah. I moved to Brooklyn because I kind of thought that's where the new music scene was. And it was kind of the important place to be, at least for a little while. I didn't. I was kind of over my sound and I wanted to see what was a little more in. And uh, I kind of learned really quick what I do is not in <laughs> living in Brooklyn. <laughs> Why do you so, say that? So my roommates 
you know, had, had like a, a party, like once, once we were all moved in and it was all me and my roommates is me. And I think it was me and all girls at first. And when I moved in or me, Ryan and all girls, and uh, they had a party and they're like, you should play too. And I played and they're like, you're, you're really good, but it's not the music. I, not the kind of music I'd listen to. Mm. And I was like, oh, okay. And I realized I was a bit too polished in some ways and they liked either like more grungy stuff or they liked stuff that was like synth based or something. Sure. Super indie sound was like what was happening in Brooklyn at the time. So when you hear stuff like that from people you don't really know, but you went there seeking feedback, right? You went to Brooklyn to like see what was going on. Did, did you change your sound at all? Well, I mean, there's things I wanted to incorporate a bit more, but what I found is that just wasn't my audience. And then if I played a certain section in Manhattan, that my music actually fit. Well, that's interesting. I like that because I think, you know, as an artist, there's always going to be people that aren't your audience. Right. Right. And I feel very strongly that you shouldn't necessarily change your art for the audience, right? you find the right audience for your art. Right. Well, what's so interesting about living in Brooklyn at that time, I wrote uh, Make You My Lady there. Mm-hmm. And that is probably the least Brooklyn song ever. And it's the one that performs the best for me. Yeah. But on the other side of the world. Yeah. In South Korea. So we haven't got there yet. But for the listeners, I'm going to bring you up to speed. So Jim, and I'll have him tell you the story, but... But to give you the headline now, Jim has a song called Make You My Lady, which he just referenced, that has been on the charts in South Korea, China, and other parts of Asia for a decade? Well, well right? this summer, it'll be out 10 years. 10 years. Uh, it'll been on the charts for about eight and a half or okay. something like that. So this song point time. was... It's a great song, but it was a song that Jim made in the progress of making a lot of music, and he put it out, and he was proud of it, but he never said, oh, this is it. This is the song that's going to make me famous. But this song has been in major television shows. This song has been up and down the charts, as he mentioned. He has outcharted Beyonce, Ed Sheeran, Taylor Swift, Actually, all too well, 10-minute version, which is like... (laughs) Which is like the cream of the crop. Yeah. And he became super famous. I know you would never say those words, but you became very well known with a very popular song without you even realizing that this song had a life on the other side of the globe. Yeah, and that, but that's why it's like a really tough thing to say... It's, it's more like um, the music in some ways became well-known, but I'm sure. still really relatively unknown. Yeah. Well, you know, we've had conversations about this before, and I'm curious how other artists out there feel, particularly in this digital age, right, where we're consuming a lot of art and a lot of content digitally. It's fed to us. Yeah. I think a lot of times we recognize a song. I'm very guilty of this. We recognize a song or we recognize a piece of art or we recognize a show, but we can never attribute it to 
the creator. So right. you even asked me the other day, today in the car, there was a song I was singing along to. You're like, who is this? And I had zero idea. Now, take us back to those high school and college years. That would have never happened. We right. always knew. Always. Who the song came from. And I don't think that there's more art today. I think there's just more channels, like more. Well, I think there is more art. You do? Because I think it's more accessible. Like, like now I can make it on my, you know, you can make it on your laptop. Sure. The or whatever. Or on your phone. So everybody yeah. can be a musician in some way now. Yeah. So from New York to now has been a long journey, right? From your first couple of years in New York Lots of crazy experiences. You did a ton of open mics with people that have gone on to have huge success. Yeah. You played a private party at the apartment of members of Not A Surf and impressed them. Yeah. I forgot <laughs> you, about that. Yeah. You, uh, you were packing bars that Lady Gaga was playing at two nights later. Uh, up and down in the village. The bitter end. Yep, at the bitter end. And you were really exposed to a lot of different musicians and a lot of different talent. And tell me how New York shaped you as an artist. Well, I think I think one of the unique things about like the open mics, right? Because you didn't know who was going to come in there and play. And that's why like no matter what, you had to be nice to everybody. Yeah. Like, there's no room for an ego. Yeah. Like being there. And that's one of the things I learned is... No one's better than anybody else. Everybody's different. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. And as soon as you realize that, you'll not compare yourself negatively. You'll not take away things that, um, you know, you'll not walk away with uh, taking the joy, as you always say. I, <laughs> I can't. Comparison I, is the thief of joy. That's you. what I always say. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Which is totally true. It's totally yeah. true. And some of the guys that used to do the open mics that are like super famous now, or they're like touring all over with like Willie Nelson. And it's, you know, it's crazy to see. And it's amazing to see. It is it happens amazing so fast see. for some of them. I think one of the interesting things that I've witnessed being your partner for this part of your professional journey is we talk a lot about the definition of success, right? So it's real easy to look back on those people that you played an open mic with, you know, maybe shared a drink with afterwards. You see them now selling out huge shows all over the country and it's easy for you to go, wow, I wish I was selling out shows all over the country right now or I wish I was touring with Willie Nelson. Right. But on the other side of that conversation, is this career of yours, which is really unique. And for the listeners out there who don't know, I started my career working in the music industry many moons ago. So I've been lucky enough to see a lot of people on their career. She's being modest. A path of success. But the really interesting thing for me with you in particular is you have had such a unique journey with this song that has a life on the other side of the world, I know I already said that phrase, but it has such a life beyond you, to your own point. You have music 
outside of that song, within your catalog that's been licensed for hundreds and hundreds of primetime TV placements, movie features. You're, you had a song that was actually written into the plot of a show that airs here in the US. So people look at you and they yeah. go, this guy's doing it. He's made it. I would love to travel internationally and play a room where people know the words to my songs. Do you ever take a couple steps back and realize that other people see your journey and go, wow, that's what success looks like? Well, I, you know, I think I forget sometimes. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, you know, because it, it looks good on paper, right? You look at it and you're like, Okay, I'm actually, I guess, it's good to have the validation yeah. of the videos and the screenshots of the television shows and things that was on, you know? And that's, to look back, it, it does feel like a lot. So, but you do get lost sometimes when you see, and you because you can always be doing more. There's always an Ed Sheeran that you're like, Man, how does this guy keep doing it? He yeah. just keeps pulling things out of his pocket. Yeah. You know? And that's, I think, the drive is seeing that happen. So, you know, something we skipped over because we, we, I got excited about thinking about the definition of success is Jim playing music, playing out live, Playing big rooms, playing small rooms, sharing stages, owning the stage. We move from New York City to Connecticut. More space, more quiet, so you can record, you can write. It's a really interesting story when you uncovered that what you thought was just you creating music and some, you've toured over the U.S. You've had some great success across the U.S., but I want you to tell the listeners about the moment when you realized that there was a song that was having a life outside of what you knew to be your success in the States. Okay. Um, so I did a Kickstarter for a tour. Mm-hmm to promote the song Make You My Lady and the EP that it was on, Strange Weird Romantic Part 1. And actually, the first tour that that came with that, you actually helped me outline a bit of this, yeah. like the direction that made kind of sense to go. And um, I remember going, you know, I hit the, the goal on Kickstarter, which was great. Special thanks to everybody that helped me get there. I hit the goal and I and went on the road and I remember coming back and I was kind of like, what now? And then I was sitting there, we were watching TV one night and then a royalty check came in. It was like a distribution check or something. Mm -hmm. And I remember being like, well, that's weird. Where, where is that? I was like, KR? Oh, there was a little code. Yes. And I was was like, okay, KR. I I I was like, Korea? And then it happened again, like the next, I don't know, quarter felt, I think it was monthly at that time. I'm not really sure. Um, And I was like, I got to look into this. So I started like making calls and then I realized stuff was happening over there. It wasn't really till I was bartending a couple years later that I got a message from a fan 
that said, hey, man, just so you know, you're on the top of this chart. You were on this really uh, famous show here in South Korea in prime time last night. I was like, what? And they Wait, like sent a me a video. On social media? Yeah, it was on Facebook. Someone sent me a message <laughs> directly. And then they sent me a video or they told me what to look up. And they, I think they sent me a video and a timestamp, like, look this time up. And I was like, whoa. It was a major show. And, and it just kind of threw me up on the charts. It's so interesting how one thing like that, like one major show. That or, I had nothing to do with. That you had nothing to do with. So you didn't license your song that you knew of no you just had started receiving some royalty checks and thought okay so they're playing my music over there and then before you know it your song was used in a huge primetime show and it started topping the charts yeah immediately yeah so how did you start to dig into that like how how did you dig in to figure out what is going on what is this show my song's on the charts how do i figure this out well i kind of went down the rabbit hole a bit and it's like a never-ending rabbit hole Mm -hmm. but i i started going down it and i realized wait it was on other shows like i i don't know lesser known i guess but they were still pretty popular and um i realized that some people just start liking it. They just started using it. Um, Without your permission, they just started uh, right. using it. Started using it. And, but at the time, would you, were you even mad? Because it's so no, exciting. No, I mean, it's just one of those things that kind of came to a moment that I think could be part of the origin story, but I'm not really sure. It was used for a very famous wedding. Okay. And in South Korea, it's very, very... Uh, a pieback wedding. And um, that, I think, is was inspired people. I, I don't know if it was a fan-made video for this wedding. I'm not, I still don't even know the details. So you saw so a wedding video of a famous couple. Yes. And your song was in it. Exactly. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Sorry. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. And so, I mean, it was big time. Now, how did that shift what you started doing as a musician, right? Because at that point in time, you're writing, recording, you're touring the U.S., you're playing Manhattan to the Rocky Mountains, right? And back. Did you go, oh my God, I got to get overseas, like international is where it's at? Or were you just more like, I got to sit back and figure out what's happening? Well, I I wanted to know exactly where to go. Like, because you... As small as South Korea is, it's still a pretty big place once you sure. once you go there. Yeah. And I and I I wasn't even sure because I'd already at this point went over to Singapore and I didn't know if it was something I did over there or some place I played when sure. I was there. Yeah. And, and and if it like trickled it's such an in international Southeast city. Asia. Yes. Yeah. So I was I was really confused. It took me a really long time to figure out. Yeah. And get contacts yeah. and a you know publisher and stuff over there distribution yeah, so- right distribution to collect on it because it's such a new thing being like american artists over there right but you just you know it's so funny this journey forced your hand a little bit because all of a sudden you did have to do that you had to get an agent you had to get a publisher right you had to get media contacts because all of a sudden you're going to south korea and you're speaking on the biggest morning radio show in the country. Right. You're being interviewed by the national newspaper. 
you're playing a national, or a, yeah, I guess it's a national pop music festival in Seoul. Right. Where all, every venue's like packed. So you had to get real, real fast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was, you saw it. It was, yeah. a, it was a, it was a learning curve. And I, and I don't, I'm glad you even brought those details up. I didn't even remember all of those. Yeah. I do now. <laughs> yeah. You know, but you forget them all. Like, well, and it's got to be so overwhelming. And, and, and playing the USO, getting a nice little Yeah, know, that's right. You played the USO for the troops. It was really cool. So, you know, it's interesting that you bring up that it's hard for you to remember all those details. Do you think to be a successful musician, you need to have a mastery of details and kind of the business management piece? Because there is a lot. It's a, it's a tough industry. There's a lot to manage from licensing and rights and contracts and copyrights. You know, for anybody that's out there that's listening, that loves music and wants to pursue music as a passion, do you think it's a must-have to be business-minded and detail-oriented? I think it's you way more have to be business-minded than you do have to be good at music. Really? Yes. You do? Yes. Why I mean, it, I think in some, way, in some way it goes hand-in-hand, hand, but I think there's so many almost fakers that are good at business that like if you see them live you're like they're terrible <laughs> well there is definitely a machine i'm right? not gonna use any names the, or anything like that there's definitely a machine that pumps out musicians these days right it's a huge industry but for independent musicians starting out you think they need to have a bigger business mind than a musical talent Pretty much these days, you almost have to be like a one-stop shop where you do everything. That's interesting. Where you're like selling yourself constantly. Because there's always, and I learned this from my friend Jared Cooper, that um, there's always um, someone trying to make money off you. As an artist. As an artist. There's two types of people in the industry. There's the artist and the people that make money off them. <laughs> yes. That's the. Yeah. That's how he said. And it's He's hard right. to know who to trust, right? Exactly. It's really hard to know how to trust. So having even just street smarts mm -hmm. to be able to see if people are authentic and on your side or not is probably yeah infinitely helpful. You know, I ask a lot of the people that I interview for the show, what are three traits or three things you think someone needs to have to be successful in your industry? But I think we've tackled some of them, right? So. A natural passion for music and ability to, to play music. Business savvy, because it is a business. You can't just create art and expect it to be successful. You have to market it. You have to right. find your niche. You have to do all of the actual work to get it placed or in front of an audience. What would you say is like a third thing that somebody who wants to be a professional musician of any kind needs to have to be successful? Um... I think one of the things that I learned along the way is that you have to be friends with everybody. Mm. You have to be friendly. And I think, I think going into it, when I started out, I was just, you kind of wear this strong front, like we're, we're the baddest, like we're the most progressive rock band you're going to ever see. And then you kind of realize, we got to tone it down and be friendly. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you kind of burn bridges along the way, kind of, kind of getting there to, to learn that, wow, it really takes a bit of a sense of humor and humility and 
being able to get in front of, you know, to open up for someone, even if you may be better than them. Sure. And, you know, there's a lot of that. Um, seeing, seeing guys that are just friends with everybody, that was huge. Yeah. Like the, the alternate roots guys. They're like the friendliest, nicest guys in the, in the business that I've ever met. It, I firmly believe that that is super important and it's not just universal to musicians, right? Like I think in a lot of industries, arts in particular, people can be so cutthroat. But those who truly want to kind of plant roots and have an impact and an influence long term, like being a good human yes, and building just authentic relationships right take you really far because you never know when someone who you've worked with or who's crossed your path is going to have a moment where they can reach their hand out to you and bring you along on the journey and if you've built that relationship over time they'll think of you you'll come to mind right whereas yeah if you think you're better than everybody else and you kind of keep to yourself and whatever it's just it's harder to survive and find success in the community yeah you start kind of Losing friends and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But I I was going to say having a universal message is key as well. What do you mean by that? Like when you're writing a a song to have it most relatable to the human condition, that's, that's like on the, on the art standpoint, I find that those really translate a lot better rather than if you're just writing a song that's just super inner focused, it almost makes it too hard to sell in a way. Well, maybe it makes it too hard for the audience to see themselves in it. Here's exactly. The that, yeah, 100%. Yeah, which translates to it being successful. So I love that piece of advice for songwriters and musicians and singers, you know, to craft art that tells your story, but also a story that your listeners maybe have seen themselves in and lived in their own experience, which so is universally relatable. Yeah. Are there any other tips like that that you would give somebody who's just starting out who's like, man, I want to be a singer or I want to be a guitar player. I want to get up on that stage. What advice would you give them? I, I always say go for it. But I, I think the biggest thing is figuring out your material and what you want to play and then running it a million times before you get on that first stage. Because once you get up there, yes, you're going to, you're going to find a whole bunch of things right away that distract you from doing it right. But you'll get it that much closer the next time. For me, I always find the more I can simplify something from when I played alone Mm -hmm. to the stage means that when I'm on stage, I got to think a lot less about it and just be fully in the moment. Yeah. So I used to like play up and down the neck more. I don't really like to do that in front of a bigger audience because I don't like to think. I just want to emotionally just be in the moment. Yeah. So if I can just close my eyes, play some open chords with a capo, for me, that works better. You know, so you got to do, I want to say like, I don't want to say stick in your lim- stay in your limitations, but I want to say um, figure out what is your strong point. Mm-hmm. Like the strongest part of your voice, the strongest part of your playing, whatever it is. And, and use that vehicle to the best of your ability. You know, and I think trying to find those, it might take a little crash course to get there. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's something that 
people lose sight of when they look at musicians in particular and they look at singers and artists is that, you know, your favorite overnight success probably spent eight years becoming that overnight success. It takes a lot of practice, a lot of hours, a lot of dedication. And yeah, everyone can say that, but I can tell you, you are literally picking up your guitar wherever you have a spare moment. I can hear you playing guitar. We have guitars all over our house. I can hear you playing guitar (laughs) when I'm getting ready in the morning, in the moments where you have just a free two-minute window of downtime. You know, you are literally playing all the time. When you're not playing, you're writing and composing in your head. Do you think, you know, is that that what most musicians do? Do you think most are just constantly working on their craft? You know, I don't really know. I find that I write my best songs in the shower. Yeah. And I always have to keep my phone really close because I'll be completely covered in soap and like trying to sing, (laughs) uh, hitting on my notepad. Good thing with my new phone, like, you know, it's waterproof or something. But I, you know, I don't have a specific place. I like to drink coffee in the morning and if I can get away and drink coffee and write, you know, that's, I find it was my free mind moment. Also, uh, like middle of the night is a very free mind moment. Mm-hmm. But the problem with that night, you can't really turn it off and go to bed. Yeah. I'm an insomniac, yeah. really. Once so you're in the zone. Once you're in the zone, it's yeah. just like go until you finish the project. Mm-hmm. Uh, funny John Mayer thing. I think he wrote Daughters in the shower one night. <laughs> That's true. I, I think in the bathroom or in the shower one night. That's a good story. I think... Um, Something else that I find really interesting about people who can create, because I don't know how you do it. I don't know how anybody does it. To be able to witness somebody literally composing music in their head and have to run from the room to get a beat or a melody or all of the parts recorded before that song has escaped their mind. It is a really, really fascinating thing to witness when you're someone like me who does not have that ability. Um... How do you find balance when the art is almost creating itself inside of you, right? And you have to find time to, to release it. it and to catch it. Right. I love that. You have to catch it. How do you find the balance in creating the space and time to let that cultivate and let that come out of you and to catch it versus all the other demands of just everyday living? Well, I find that there. Each moment is, you know, you're, you're in a kind of a different setting and each moment leans more to one way or another to get some aspect of it done, right? So say first thing you wake up, maybe you can write a little, maybe you can't. Say the next moment you're either at work, which I did a lot of writing at all my different jobs. I had like 20 jobs that we did not discuss, <laughs> supplemental jobs of all different kinds, every industry you can name. And breaking away and writing down a lyric really quick. Going running into the bathroom to hum a melody into the phone real quick or write down, you know, lyrics or chords or something. Every moment you find different ways to kind of make that work. And with technology, they've made it a a lot easier. One of the the things when I was first recording back then, they had a little tape recorder and I try to record and remember melodies. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you. How many times I said, oh, I'll remember this one tomorrow. And I never remember it if I don't record it. Yeah. So now with technology and phone voice memo, it's way easier 
to just follow the next day and say, oh, I, I see where I was going, rather than, this is terrible. I should stop writing. <laughs> Which probably doesn't happen that often. I'm sure every now and then. So your answer to being able to find the balance between the two is actually that you're just allowing the art to come whenever it chooses. And yes, finding, sorry, I, finding like ways to just capture it in the moment without completely derailing, like being at your nine to five back in the day when you had all these other supplemental jobs, which you're fortunate right. enough now to be able to focus on music a lot more. Well, you, you kind of supplement the time to do it. So like whether you're sneaking away in the bathroom or you find when I get back tonight and everybody's asleep, I'm going to sneak up to the studio and write a bass line yeah. for this song or whatever. Yeah. So thinking about how your career has transitioned, you know, from basement strummer, playing big college shows to moving to New York City and playing small rooms, then big rooms, touring across the U.S., touring internationally, having this big success overseas in South Korea and China and other parts of the globe. You know, what's next? When you think about you're still an independent musician, you're on the largest licensing label Largest global independent. Thank you. Publisher. Global independent publisher. So you've done a lot of things. You've achieved a lot of things. But it's funny because, you know, you're still uh, very humble, very down to earth, very unassuming. You're the favorite guy in our neighborhood. You're all of your friends' favorite friends. You're just like, you know, most people would meet you and just think, oh my gosh, that guy's so cool. He's so nice. They would never know you have this really fascinating backstory and you've had these tremendous successes. So when you think about like your career and you think about what could be next for you, what pops into your head? What are you chasing? What's your goal? I just want to keep recording keep recording and releasing music. I mean, that's, but approaching the marketing different slightly every time. Because I find you can always reach a different audience and reach a different listener. And then those songs grow legs and have a life of their own. So like, I mean, isn't the whole thing of being an artist, I mean, if, if you do it to be successful in a way, some people do art and they say, I just don't, I don't, I don't care. I just do it for me. Right. I'm not one of those artists. I mean, I do do it for me, but at the same time, I, I do it for the validation. I think of an artist. I think that that's to be recognized for my art. Yeah. I think that's what a lot of people do. And I think it's almost in the dream of maybe this will live on someday long after I'm gone. I think that's what it is. That's what Who success knows? May, looks Make like. You My Lady may do that. If you could go back and give yourself one piece of advice, just one, to 16-year-old Jim walking into Sam Mash thinking, oh man, I'm going to get my first guitar. This is the most exciting moment of my young life. If you could just say one thing to that kid, what would it be? Probably don't try so hard. You'll figure it out. Like, relax. <laughs> um, it takes time, but you'll get there. I think. I don't know. I've never really thought about that. It's a tough question. Yeah. Um, I just meant like, it'll come to you if you just hang in there. 
writing will become easier, less forced. You need just need the life experience. It's going to come. Yeah. And yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Practicing time and honestly, like life experience is key, right? Perspective is key. The more you play, the more yeah. you try, the more life you live. Yeah. Things fall into place. Awesome. All right. Well, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for letting me interrogate you. <laughs> I thank appreciate you, it. Thank you for sharing your really, really unique story with everyone out there listening. Jim, if people want to look you up and learn more about you, hear your music, where should they go? Well, probably on every box store platform that exists. If you want to look for music, I don't know, wherever you listen to music, um, look up my name, Jim Wolf. No E, as we said before. And, and on social? Uh, at Jim underscore Wolf. Okay. I'm pretty much almost every platform. Okay. But I would say probably go to my website. It's probably the easiest, jimwolf.com. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> People, art, music, they're inspiring to all of us. But to some of us, when we see people performing, it's an unlock, a calling. Suddenly, we know we couldn't do anything else but create or perform. And in Jim's case, being exposed to incredible talent early on inspired him to hone a craft, the guitar and his voice. And then in college, bonding with other musicians turned him into a performer in a band, something he had only ever dreamed of up until that point. And playing in front of thousands of people for the first time gave him a spark that dreams can become realities. And from that moment on, Jim committed himself to the thing that brought him the most joy. And that's a big lesson for all of us. When there is something so impactful in your life that you are spending every spare minute thinking about it, doing it, talking about it, that is your calling. And you owe it to yourself to pursue it. Not everyone will be able to make it their career, and that's okay. But don't let the hard work, don't let the constructive feedback, don't let the fear of failure stop you from pursuing your all-consuming passion. After years of defining and redefining his music, when Jim first moved to Brooklyn, he was told he was good, but his sound didn't work for them. But instead of changing his art for the audience, he invested more time into his craft. And he went out and found the audience that was right for his art. And then, a few years later, an audience he never expected overseas. They found him. And they loved him. Just as he was. And the funny thing about this story, one he is still very much writing, is that Jim himself is now doing the very thing that those who inspired him to step into music in the first place were doing. He has played stages from New York City to Seoul, Korea. He has music featured in TV and film. He has fans who curate blogs about his music and his career. But yet, 
He'd never say he made it. In fact, he winced through most of the accolades I threw on him in this interview. He doesn't even really think he's a success in music. And I want you to take something away from that. Sometimes we have done tremendous things, things others only dream of, things we ourselves dreamt of when we were young. And we don't even realize that we have achieved a version of our own wildest dreams. And there's a lot of reason for that, right? But today I want to remind you, don't let your fear and definitely don't let comparison stop you from taking inventory of your wins. We all have them. If you do one thing this week, I want you to sit down and take inventory of all the great things you've done, the wonderful person and professional you have become, the things you know you're lucky to have, and the experiences you're fortunate enough to have collected. Give yourself a moment and permission to be really, really proud. And if you do that, and you see that there's still so much more you want to achieve, and I'm sure there is, commit to carving out the time and space you need to allow yourself to continue working on your craft. Give yourself permission and tools to catch the inspiration, as Jim says, and do it whenever and wherever it comes your way. I can't wait to see what's next for you. Thanks for tuning back in for a whole new season of the Yes Pile podcast. If today was at all inspiring or helpful for you, please let me know. I'm reading your feedback on Instagram, so follow us along at the Yes Pile podcast or email me directly anytime. Connect at tessawolf.com. And if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.